So my hope for our generation is to join me in that articulation, that black people are good, that black people have a history that doesn't just begin with slavery or colonialism, that black people have been doing things, that they have been good. Welcome to How Do You Feel, a podcast with info and inspo to help you tune in to your fitness, nutrition, and mindset. I'm your host, Casey Zavaleta, and together we'll explore how we can optimize our physical and mental health so that we radiate positivity and happiness from the inside out. Hi, everyone. Welcome to How Do You Feel? This week on the podcast, again, we're taking another diversion from our normal fitness, nutrition, wellness, mindset content to talk about racism. I was lucky enough to have my friend Ezzy Odazor on to interview her about the very important topics of racism, systemic racism, colonialism, white supremacy, and lots more topics that I don't know enough about, but have a burning desire to learn about. In this episode, Ezie gets really real about her feelings about what's going on, about her anger and frustration with white people and the fact that we're just now interested in showing up. I really appreciated how candid Ezie was about how her work is for black people. It's not to help white people get up to speed about massive injustices that we've known about for way too long, but haven't paid attention to long enough. Ezi is a Nigerian-born writer, scholar, and student support specialist based in Toronto. Her work, which is both fiction and nonfiction, focuses on themes of identity, culture, gender, race, health, and intimacy. Ezi's work has been featured in several journals and showcased in several exhibits. She recently completed her Master's of Education with a collaborative specialization in global health at the University of Toronto, where she worked across the subjects of race, Black feminisms, anti-colonialism, and global health. For those of you that are diving into doing some of the personal work and learning about racism, Ezzy has provided a multitude of resources in the show notes from people of color, and I highly suggest that everyone goes and checks them out. Because guys, it's time to learn. It's time to educate ourselves about these issues so that we can not only understand and think about them properly, but also stand up against them and stand up against racism and the injustices that are happening in our society right before our eyes all the time. One of my favorite parts of this conversation with Ezzy is also when we talk about how racism shows up in the fitness industry. And the things that she speaks about definitely apply to the fitness industry, but they apply to many different types of spaces. I am so excited for all of you to hear from Ezzy. She is so intelligent and well-spoken, and she had me in tears multiple times with her powerful words. So this is a really special episode for me to share with all of you. Of course, this is a subject to talk about that's a little bit outside of my comfort zone. So I feel a little bit vulnerable releasing this one just because I know that I don't say all of the right things and some of the questions that I ask aren't the right questions. 
but I'm here, I'm showing up, I'm trying to have these conversations and share them with the listeners because I just know deep down how important it is. So anyways, without further ado, here is my conversation with Ezzy Odazor. Hi, Ezzy. Welcome to the How Do You Feel podcast. I am really excited to have this conversation with you today. I'm excited too. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. I think that this is a really important topic and something that I haven't talked enough on the podcast about. So I'm very grateful for you coming on um, to talk with us about something that I really feel that we all need to learn more about. So thank you so much for that. How do you feel about the protesting that's been happening in the U.S., in Toronto, and worldwide since George Floyd's death? Yeah, I mean, how do I feel? How do I feel about the protests in particular? You know, I feel good about them in that. I think they're important. I think it's time. I think it's past time. How do I feel about the situation overall and, you know, the kind of moral uprising that is now happening? Um, I feel a lot of things there that are pretty complicated, right? I feel good again. I also feel angry. I am upset. Sometimes I feel nothing. You know, sometimes I feel hopeful. Um, I feel skeptical, disappointed. I feel challenged. I feel tired. I feel happy also in some time, in some spaces. Um, all the things yeah at once and I've definitely you know I I know that everyone's approaching this with a different background a different understanding of the topics at hand and I know that these are things that are near and dear to your heart both professionally and obviously personally I can definitely relate to the just onslaught of all the different emotions happening right now I'm wondering if we could dig in a little bit what part of this is making you feel angry I mean the protest is one thing. The protests are one thing, right? And about those, I'm in full support in, in all the ways that they have come up. But about the overall kind of, you know, like I called it before, like a moral uprising, a big part of the feeling in that is disappointment, you know? Why, why now? I think it's a big question a lot of Black and racialized and, and Indigenous people are asking. They're white fellow humans. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, you know, why now? Um, Why is it that our suffering has to be particularly placed for you to understand and accept and challenge those things that make us hurt, right? And and I think in a lot of people's intimate lives, that's a big question, right? When you have white friends, um, when you even have non-white friends who are also racist or who are also professing these things about just knowing now, right? You start to really look and say, what did you think about me before, right? And I was talking to a good friend of mine about this recently, about the idea that, you know, do you have to be bleeding along with me to know that it hurts? How much of the pain do you need to be exposed to to finally care about that hurt, right? So those, those thoughts really make me angry, make me upset. And so when people are saying, I just realized now, my reaction is bullshit. (laughs) You know, you didn't just realize now, you just cared now. So what does that say about you and your moral center? So I think that's a question that white people really have to grapple with. You really have to think about that because that not just affects race relations, but also 
other areas of your life that you think about in terms of people's identities, in terms of people's intersections, in terms of injustice. Why, what does that say about me? And what does that say about the ways in which I need to change and be better? Man, it's so true. Like, why are people showing up now? Did it take a global pandemic where everyone's sitting on their couches and right. these deaths that are at the forefront of our news that are on our screens, did it take it being cool on social media for people to actually decide like, okay, now I'm going to show up. And what were the like, what were the deep down reasons that people are deciding to show up? Like these are things that 100% I've been thinking about a lot as well. And I think I, I like, it is disappointing to know mm -hmm. and look back both about yourself, but just about like humans in general, like we're so, effing selfish you know it's not you're right it's not until now it's personal for me too right now mm -hmm. like i'm bleeding with you and so now i care now i'm having you on my podcast mm -hmm. what the hell you know i and moving forward one of the things that just as a human that i just want to be so much better at and i voiced this a little on that my episode last week i, I just want to like think about things bigger than me more. I just need to start thinking about perspectives besides mine even more. And I think it's a skill that needs to be cultivated, but it's so important. And I think it's important, you know, not just to sit and think with ourselves, because I think that a lot of white people don't actually know a lot of racialized people. So you're sitting in, in an echo chamber, mm -hmm. right? So not simply, of course, the self-reflection is imperative, but really engaging with the multitude of ways in which racialized people have been engaging in this dialogue since, you know, and continue to do. So whether that be watching videos, I'm not saying go up to, you know, the first racialized person you see and be like, hey, what's the news? <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's the word? Right. <laughs> something that, you know, is annoyingly happening. You know, my inbox is saturated, you know? Yeah, and a lot sure. of that is going getting immediately deleted. But to really engage with the text that have been put out in, in text in multiple ways, the books, the articles, the videos, the podcasts, you know, mm -hmm. that already exist. Um, and use that as part of your self-reflection that does not just center yourself, right? And your feeling. Right. right. Yeah, for sure. It's easy for us to get in our little circle of people that feel the same way as us and then just keep bouncing the same ideas around that little circle. And until we broaden our horizons, we're not really going to be doing any learning. Right. Yeah. Right now, a lot of the conversation that's happening is specifically centered around police brutality in the U.S., mm -hmm. which is indicative of the systemic racism and the brokenness that exists back in the U.S. for sure. Mm -hmm. But can you help us to understand why this is not just a United States issue? This is actually a worldwide issue. So this is one of them big questions I was talking to you about. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of big questions for Ezzy uh -huh. today. <laughs> uh -huh. um, so police brutality in the United States and indeed everywhere, including Canada, um, is part of systemic racism, right? It's not indicative simply of the level, but of the existence of systemic racism. So systemic racism is about the ways in which racism is embedded into the foundations of our society, right? It's not about individual intent or action. So when people are looking to dismantle it, it's not a practice of trying to change hearts and minds, right? 
Um, it's about uprooting and destroying, and I use those words very intentionally, right? The systems, structures, and ideologies that undergird, which means to that's, that hold it up, right? Inequity, injustice, and injustice in our society. So principally, it's about, in this case, you know, uprooting the systems and structures that use race to advantage some and disadvantage others in a variety of ways, right? In a, in, in a number of methods of violence, right? Mm -hmm. So those race-based injustices exist everywhere, not just in the United States. And I think the importance and place of history kind of comes in here too, right? So anti-Blackness did not come out of slavery, which also existed and arguably still exists in many parts of the world, including Canada, mm -hmm. right? And you know, Canada doesn't like to talk about that. Yeah. They like to hide it. <laughs> You know, but slavery happened here too for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. um, I recommend reading the work of Afua Cooper on this subject, and you know, I'll give you tons of resources to add to your show notes and stuff like that. Amazing, thank you. Um, but anti-blackness and indeed many other forms of racism stem mainly from Euro-colonial expansion. And there's multiple forms of colonialism, and colonialism is ongoing today. <laughs> um, but anti-blackness stems from colonial expansion. So white people needed a way to excuse immoral expansionist behavior, right? Mm -hmm. So they created notions around blackness. Race is created. So when people say race is a construct, true, but you can't just stop there. You have to, you have to understand that race is a construct that has material implications in people's lives. And so to make that construct, you need to create ideas about it, right? To sustain its relevance and to use it. So, okay, can you tell me can you tell me more about what you mean? So race is a construct that we've created. I understand that concept. Now, what are you saying about the application of people's lives? When you say race is a construct, that's yeah. just an air, right? Yeah. It can mean or not mean anything. But when you talk about race as a construct that has material, meaning tangible, consequences in people's lives, then you have to say, how do those consequences come to be and how does race become important so race becomes important because of the, the notions that we attach to it right and we attach those notions or those no not we but those attachments notions have been attached such that it can be used to justify certain things right right so the notions that were created about black people were that black people were not human right and so we can treat black people like animals. Because, and I mean, that t tells us about, you know, how we think about non-humans too, that they should be therefore less than human. But black people were considered non-human, childlike, right? Being in need of the white people to control and save them, right? Or to make them useful, slavery, <laughs> you know? And this idea was used to justify colonial expansion globally and its effects still persist today, and they hold up systems of power and privilege today, everywhere, right? And so in saying that, I think it's also important for the big question to unpack what racism actually is, right? What is racism? You know, it's a topic that's complicated in a lot of ways, but I don't think that gives us an excuse. <laughs> you know, it's complicated, but it's not so complicated that we can't sit with it, think about it, and understand the ways in which it operates in all of our everyday lives, right? Yeah. The ways in which it impacts us, the ways in which we engage it, right? And I think you'll often hear racism 
described as prejudice and discrimination against individuals and groups based on a belief that one's race is superior. And that's your quick and snappy Merriam-Webster definition, which by the way, has been challenged and Merriam-Webster is changing their definition. But there's a big problem with that definition, right? It relies on belief, personal belief. And it also doesn't um, take into consideration power, privilege, whiteness and white supremacy, systems, structures, you know, all the things that sit at the center of racism. So I think we need to rework that definition a little bit and kind of go with an anti-racist kind of definition. And I guess we'll talk about that too later. But racism is a form of prejudice and discrimination that relies on an engagement, whether implicit or explicit, with the idea of hierarchy of races, where whiteness sits at the top and exerts power over our realities. So when I talk about it being a hierarchy of races, being attached to a hierarchy of races where whiteness sits at the top, what that means is that we're not just talking about black and white, right? It's not a binary, right? It's not two things opposed. It's about a spectrum. So it's about all the things that happen between, all the people that exist between, all the bodies and experiences that exist between. So it's about black skin, it's about white skin, it's about brown skin, it's about yellow skin yet. Um, but just like we talked before, it's more about the ideas that you attach to blackness, to whiteness. And therefore, the closer you get to whiteness, it's imagined that closer you're getting, you're getting to good. And the closer you get to blackness, it's imagined that the closer you're getting to bad, right? And I mean, like, one good example of that is, you know, the rebranding campaign of Jesus, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Jesus ain't white, y'all, but, <laughs> but you know, he's from the Middle East, but in the rebranding campaign of that, in order for whiteness to, to own Jesus and to own good, you see Jesus whitewashed, right? So, and all of that is part of the mechanism, um, you know, and the history of making whiteness premium, you know, best, good, dominant, right? And I think Bell Hooks talks about it in a, in a piece uh, called Representing Whiteness, in the black imagination, where he talks about how the words white and black are coded, right? And so where white is associated with white magic and good, the white fairy, the white witch, and black is, black, is bad, dirty, nasty, bad, evil. But those are not common sense things. Those are you know, the consequences of plays with language. Because you can say, you know, when you need to hide or seek safety, is not the cover of a very black, black night, your very best friend. And you can say that whiteness or white light is cruelly blinding. So there's nothing common sense about black being bad and white being good. Language is an exercise of manipulations and it's also a window into people's worldviews. So we have to be careful with language. And so going back to what racism is, racism is the combination of race, prejudice, whiteness, white supremacy and power right? And it lets us understand a couple of things, which I think are really important, which is one, there's different types of racism. And we're talking about anti-Black racism today, but there are different types of racism. Two, that reverse racism doesn't exist, <laughs> you know, because of power. So reverse racism is when white people say, oh, Black people are being racist against me. Oh, Asians are being racist against me. 
no, 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 honey, that's not a thing, okay? That doesn't exist, that's not real. Because of the position of power, because of the position of whiteness in what racism is, okay? It also explains why racialized groups can be racist against each other. And really, let me rephrase that, how racialized groups can engage racism against each other. And then it also, and importantly, explains why racism is beyond simply individuals, right? Beyond individual belief, right? And beyond individual location. It's about power. It's about prevailing ideologies. So it's about systems. It's about structure. And it's about the ways in which those systems, structures, institutions privilege, as I said before, some people and exclude, marginalize, devalue, and further harm others. Um, so racism exists everywhere and police brutality is part of systemic racism everywhere. And Canada is not less racist than the United States. Racism isn't better here. Um, and you know, when people say that, I'm like, even if it was true, which it's not, what the fuck is less racist? <laughs> racist is racist yeah. and it's shite, however and wherever it shows up. That's my big, big answer to the big question. <laughs> Man, you said probably like 10 things that blew my mind there, but I'm just going to pull out a couple. <laughs> First of all, man, the way that you're talking about the way that we use and leverage language, even in the way that we think about white or light things and black or dark things, that is actually blowing my mind because it's become so ingrained, even in the way we talk, the way we think about these concepts. I've never related that to the way that we think about races as well. That is just so insane and it's so big, right? So I mean, how do you, I don't even know how you do the work to start to dismantle that. I liked your metaphors that you used about how like dark can be your friend and dark isn't always bad and, you know, black isn't always bad. But man, that's just big and super interesting to think about. And it just further proves how ingrained this is in the way that we breathe, live, act, talk, think. It's just so ingrained in us. So it's important to unpack, but also huge, you know? You gotta do the work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. The other thing that's really interesting, I feel, about what you're saying is that right now, I think a lot of people are very in their own heads, like, me, 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 like, mm. am I racist or anti-racist? What are my beliefs? It's very individualized right now mm. in the way that people are showing up on social and what they feel like they should be saying and you know, yeah. reaching out to individuals in their lives so that they feel better. Like yeah. we're very in our own selves. And every single thing that you just said proves why this is not about you. This is not about any one individual. It's just way bigger than that. It's not about whether you are racist or anti-racist. It's that our society is racist. Our world is racist. Yeah. That's what we're talking about here. Right. And that's what we need to understand. Like stop Stop limiting yourself to being in your own mind of, okay, well, I'll be anti-racist and then yeah. it's fine. You yeah. know, it's just like, it's not good enough. Mm -hmm. So crazy. I would say it's not about centering yourself, right? There's definitely a practice that has to be about yourself and your intimate relationships. But overall, the overall, as you're saying, overarching problem is not about selves. It's not mm -hmm. about self, rather. It's about selves and society. Mm -hmm. um, and... I think we'll talk about being anti-racist, but you do need to be anti-racist, right? Because that, that's so much about action, so much about dismantling 
It's not simply, I think somebody else put this on social media. It's not about a practice of self-reflection, right? If your, you know, racism work, is it just simply a practice of self-reflection and, oh, that was bad once, you know? <laughs> You're not doing anything, right? right? It has to be actively about dismantling systems of oppression for other people and, and, and therefore also for yourself. Making the world better for other people also makes the world better for yourself, right? Yeah. 100%, 100%. The more you give, the more you get. The more equality we have in our society and less oppression, the better we all are for it, 100%. Let's go ahead and go there to the this racist versus anti-racist concept. Definitely something that I've learned. I wish I knew this before, but I, you know, I lived in, under the, the blanket of, well, I'm just not racist, you know, mm-hmm. and it, I've, you know, come to realize that that's not actually really a thing either racist or anti-racist but can you explain why those are kind of two mutually exclusive categories okay so you'll hear me talk about colonialism a lot and i said colonialisms are multiple right so colonialisms are about power and power how power is engaged uh takes shape in multiple ways um so anti-racism like anti-colonialism is a stance of action the anti means action right <laughs> and that action, you can't just sit back and watch the systems crumble, <laughs> you know, over a beer, watching it like the horizon. No, you have to actually do things. And I think, you know, if anybody follows me on Instagram, you probably heard me talking about, you know, intent versus action, sentiment versus action, right? So when we talk about racism as a system, as we just did, um, that advantages some people and disadvantages others, if you are simply not racist, Okay, you are racist (laughs) because you're sitting pretty and enjoying, and I mean that in the literary sense of the word, which means to inherently benefit from um, the oppression of others. So you can't just be not racist while enjoying everything that while enjoying white privilege, white power, Uh, like just yeah, totally. I'm so happy for you that you got that job because it was made easier for you because of the color of your skin. But you know, you don't say the n-word so you're not racist no that's not how it works right so therefore you can only be racist which is either explicitly and we can think of the kkk which is like the biggest most obvious example or implicitly which is like we just talked about sitting pretty Mm -hmm. (laughs) or anti-racist one or the other Mm -hmm. Um, and you know you that means you actively 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 anti-racism isn't just saying racism is bad obviously if you're not up to speed with that, <laughs> then you got a different problem and you might just need to go work on that. Yeah. But, so it's not just about saying racism is bad. It is about actively, actively disengaging from your privilege, which might mean giving up opportunity, which might mean sitting back, which might mean, you know, making yourself uncomfortable, which is necessary, right? And you need to do that on the basis of race and on the basis of other oppressions. Anti-racism is, is actually, it foregrounds, which means it puts at the center working against race, but it also works with other oppressions because it argues that you can't have a just world, a world where justice is, is at the center, without also dismantling other forms of oppression. Right? So anti-racism is not a selfish discourse in and of itself. Mm-hmm. It actually is a discourse about dismantling oppression broadly, but with salience or particularity to race right right 
because at the heart of what it's doing and saying is that there is no justice for oppression of people based on something arbitrary, based on their identification with a group. And it doesn't it doesn't just apply to black versus white or even the spectrum of racialization that we're talking about. Like it can be anything. So that makes total sense. And I think that it's very hard for a lot of people to wrap their minds around, you know, I've always just sat back and been very neutral on this subject. How can you help people to kind of understand where to start in taking that anti-racist action that you're describing? I mean, (laughs) as a Black person, I ain't got time to help (laughs) y'all. Y'all need to help yourself. Because honestly, like in ways in which I work around, you know, racism, and in particular, um, the work I do around Black feminism, right? Um, My concern is Black people. My center is Black people. My center center, (laughs) if you want to go that deep, is Black women. And so when I write, when I work, I don't write or work as an apology, right? As like, I have to constantly be like reacting to racism and like being like, this isn't fair. Here's why. This isn't good. No, I am not just engaging in that practice. I'm engaging in practices of talking about Black people as if our value is common sense. Right. So that is my resistance practice. So when I write, I talk about what Black women are doing. Black women are doing this. Right. We are doing this. We talk. I talk about Black futures by reestablishing Black present. That's what I do. But for people to help themselves, you know, people to do that work themselves, um, where you need to start is being honest first about what you have failed to do. You know, I see a lot of the apologies being like, I didn't know. So, no, 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 no. What didn't you know? Why do you think you didn't know it? And when you realize that you actually did know it, (laughs) you know, why didn't you do something about it? So be honest first. That is the platform. Be honest first, right? And then interrogate by actively looking into all of the things that have been going on around you and what your lack of honesty before means for you now and for you going forward. So learn about yourself and learn about what's going on around you. And in doing that, don't just buy books from white people. Don't just listen to podcasts from white people. I know there's like a, I forget her name now, but a really famous like anti-racist white lady. I mean, white people love to share that shit. Y'all. We get it. She with it. Find somebody else. <laughs> you know, read the work of people who have been in those experiences. And when you see some black person or racialized person say racism doesn't exist, don't suddenly be like, see, this person said it doesn't exist, so I don't have to worry about it. There's a whole body of literature, a whole, a whole body of research that already proves that it exists. So forget that nonsense. Move on, move forward, do the work, do the research and read from the people whose experiences are actually at the center of that. Damn. Yeah. You're just speaking so much truth right now. Just be effing honest with yourself. Yeah. Like we're so good at lying to ourselves and saying, oh, well, yeah, exactly what you're saying. I, I didn't know. Yeah. Like bullshit. What weren't, you, what weren't you telling yourself? Why weren't you acting on it? 
And if you didn't know, why didn't you know? Like, what were you not exposing yourself to? And why were you so confined to your only your beliefs and your way of seeing things like why why weren't your horizons expanded more those are the questions we have to be asking ourselves absolutely so true and i think somebody who has beautifully articulated over time is james baldwin well he's one of my favorite like orators one of my favorite writers and he explains it in such a beautiful beautiful digestible emotional way that I think is really, really touches at human centers. And so people need, need, like if you're gonna get into this, you need <laughs> to read James Baldwin. And, and, and really, because of modern technology, you have the luxury of being able to watch some of his greatest debates on the topic, right? And I think one book to read is called The Fire Next Time, which is actually a letter James Baldwin wrote to his nephew, also named James. He's telling James, the nephew, about you know, how he's going to have to exist in this world and all the ways in which he's going to have to show up as himself, right? Because of whiteness and white supremacy and racism in the world. And in looking at this letter, you can really see the, the, the lived reality come to the fore, but you can also understand or begin to understand the ways in which racism shows up again systemically, right? So the, both the personal and the public political are, are captured in that, in that very intimate letter to his nephew that he turned into a book. Right. So the fire next time, y'all. Check it out. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Ezzy, obviously, I know you because you're part of a fitness community that I'm a coach for. I know that you're passionate about fitness in your own personal life. I'm wondering if you can tell us about the ways that you perceive that racism is showing up in the fitness industry, because this is also specifically something that I want to think about more just because of what I do professionally. Um, and I don't think it's something that the fitness industry is thinking about enough at all. Yeah. So I think that we can think about that in a number of ways, right? We can think about it in terms of bodies and who shows up in spaces and who is represented. We can think about it in terms of spaces. Um, we can think about it in terms of the ideologies or the ideas that are, you know, made common um, mm -hmm. by this industry. And wellness, let's say wellness more broadly. So spaces. Um, people like to talk about safe spaces. I don't believe in safe spaces because a space is never gonna be safe for everybody. I, I think about brave spaces, right? Spaces that require you to enter bravely. And that's not a, a, an idea that I came up with. Andrew Campbell and Professor, professor Andrew Campbell and Professor Lance McCready are two people who talk about that a lot. Um, so brave spaces, right? Um, for racialized people, a lot of the times your fitness spaces are gonna require you to be brave. And you know, there have been experiences that I've faced even in some of my favorite places, favorite fitness places that have been racist, outright, right? So in terms of the spaces, okay, well, how many racialized people are actually in your fitness community? Right? How do you feel comfortable showing up there? And um, Elizabeth Akinwale, who's like one of my favorite trainers of all time, athletes of all time, um, talks about this a lot, right? And why she doesn't even bother anymore. She focuses on creating Black-centered fitness spaces, mm. right? So, 
the bodies in the space, the community itself, what does that look like? The, the ideologies of the community, right? You know, if you're, if you're gonna have a retreat to somewhere, you know, and y'all are just doing, I don't know what I want to call it, typical white girl things, but <laughs> really having typical white girl conversations that exclude race, you know, kind of fetishize black bodies, black men, you know, those kind of things, that's not an inviting space. Also, if there's only one other black person, that's not an inviting space. You know, there's only one other racialized person that's not an inviting space. Mm-hmm. It also, and like even how we have to show up in those spaces, you know, I have not my natural hair, or if I have braids, you know, I've had people come up to me and just touch my hair. Yeah. What? <laughs> I'm working out, you're working out. What? Your dusty hand is in my hair. Yeah. <laughs> your dusty sweaty stink hand is in my hair all of a sudden out of nowhere. <laughs> what? That is so uncomfortable. Right. And it's the dehumanization of black people. Yeah. And dehumanization is a big concept in psychology and like a lot of other fields, but it's a dehumanization of black people. It's that you become an object, you become thingified, right? Um, such that I don't have to respect you as another human being. I can simply own you. I can simply behave as if you're property that I can just touch. Why does that happen in fitness spaces specifically? Um, in fitness spaces specifically, I think people, I mean, fitness spaces aren't that specific. Fitness spaces are spaces like other spaces inside in society yeah. and so i think it's relevant in the fitness space and because a lot of the times um, black women have concerns about how their hair is going to be presented in a fitness space mm-hmm. how it's going to be maintained with sweat and how it's going to be maintained because black women are always having to think about how they show up in every space yeah and so in talking about how fitness spaces and other spaces are made uncomfortable it's mm-hmm. these little quote-unquote actions that have big impact so then we talk about bodies right and i say bodies because i'm talking about in a political sense normally i would say people but i'm saying bodies because of how we read and take them up when you see fitness anything (laughs) any kind of campaign it's mostly mainly most often right i don't want to say always but most often is that you see a skinny white woman or a super muscular white man and that's promoted you don't often see um, black athletes. And when you do see them, they're usually black men and they're, and they're sometimes presented in like the King Kong image. I think that was a very famous sports illustrated cover where I, I don't remember who, but a black basketball player was represented as King Kong and was holding up a white woman. So when we're represented, we're represented as animals, <laughs> represented as something outside of the ordinary. Like this is not normal. This is something that doesn't usually happen, da, 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 so here it is. So in representation, you don't even see Black people being presented in a lot of fitness spaces. CrossFit right now is in flames. Yeah. <laughs> flames, and I think burn the whole thing down, burn the whole thing down. <laughs> but, you know, and again, Elizabeth Akinwale, y'all need to go follow her, at EFMOLA. She has just been dissecting the issue in the area, talking mm-hmm. and talking about it. And you know how like CrossFit, for example, is, is a, a racist <laughs> space. I'm not even going to couch it in anything else. Yeah, don't sure. dance around that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So and she was talking about how she won certain events in the CrossFit games. And when the media reported it, they didn't show her picture. Like they talked about the second place person when they did talk about her, was kind of in passing for events that she won. (laughs) So not only not representing, but actively erasing Black people from fitness spaces. 
yeah, and then we talk about ideologies like weight loss as an ideology. I mean, this one's pretty in, like near and dear to me. Like weight loss and body image and all of that has very racist history. We can talk about like the archetypal stereotypes about black women, the mammy figure. Y'all don't buy Aunt Jemima anything. That is a racist caricature of black women. And the mammy figure is all about, you know, servitude to white households in particular. So when people say black women are bad mothers, <laughs> you know, it kind of drives up against this stereotype. But the mammy architecture is about servitude to white households at the disregard of the, oh, the black family and of the black female body, which is why the mammy caricature, literally mammy and gone with the wind, is fat. And I say fat, and in this term, you know, paying attention to it being characterized as a bad thing, because being fat is not a bad word or bad thing, but in the way that it's taken up here, fat is bad, right? And it's bad and it's attached to this body that people are trying to distance themselves from. Mm -hmm. So fat shaming actually has a very racist history, right? So when you see body positivity campaigns, which I have very mixed feelings about, it's often propelled by white women, right? So body positivity often only is applied to white women and white fat bodies and not black women and black fat bodies. Example, Lizzo, right? Why is the, this body positivity concept only applied to white bodies and not black bodies? Can you because explain that a little bit further? There's compounding factors about stereotypes and about people's warmth to people and how and people's perception of people's competence and that's all attached to stereotypes about blackness so black people are perceived as being low competence right not knowing things and if you want to talk about it like that and then also you know low warmth people have low warmth towards black people and ideas about black people and so when you talk about body positivity and who should be celebrated and which bodies are okay whiteness comes to the fore there, comes to the front. And so when I say, I accept you as a fat person, or when society says, rather not me, <laughs> when society says, I accept you as a fat person, person means white. <laughs> Personhood is attached to whiteness, right? White people are considered the center against which all other, other people are then raced and categorized, which is why my hair to some people seems exotic. Even the use of the word exotic, you even see it in grocery stores, ethnic food aisle. It's food, motherfuckers. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. food. And even the food that you don't consider ethnic is usually stolen from elsewhere, colonialism anyway, right? So person, the idea of person is, is very much attached in people in our overall ideology to whiteness. So when I say I accept you, or society says I accept you as a, as a fat person, the image in people's brains, check which image popped up first. Was it a fat black person? Was it a fat Asian person? Was it a fat, you know, non-black Latinx person? Nah, be honest, it was a white person. So, and you know, those racist histories that I talk about really do come into play. So body positivity movement, you know, who is celebrated in that movement? Name a couple people who are celebrated in that movement. You're going to probably name more white bodies than you are racialized bodies, and then you are black bodies, than you are indigenous bodies, right? Mm -hmm. For example, Ashley Graham. Ashley Graham versus Lizzo is, a, is an example. Why is Ashley Graham celebrated as being this revolutionary woman 
you know, who started Black Positivity, which she didn't, but, you know, and Lizzo, there's all this conversation. Why is there even conversation? Why is that even a talking point? Right? Like, we, like I just said, there's spaces, right? There's, rep there's representation, and then there's ideologies. And really, those things are connected. But when you think about them, in order to really break down and think about them, think about them in the ways in which they show up every day, the ways in which you might not have realized, the small microaggressions, right? And I, and I say small just to indicate the insidious nature of it, the quiet nature of it, but not the impact. It has a very big impact. Mm -hmm. We leave that there. <laughs> <laughs> we have to remember that there are many shades of privilege that mm. exist. Mm -hmm. So when I think of someone like Ashley Graham and we think of how she is in a larger body, mm -hmm. she also though is lucky enough to experience all of these other things that actually make her very privileged. She's mm -hmm. conventionally attractive. She's white, all mm -hmm. of these things. Right. And mm -hmm. we just can't forget. Like, I think that we, we like to see it in, in very like, Oh, well, she's different. So, you know, she's doing something revolutionary. It's like, well, she's maybe not conventionally, you know, a model in one way, but then there are 10 other ways where she is. And so is it really as, what's my word? Not groundbreaking. I don't know. Is it as revolutionary as we think that she is celebrated as this, you know, right. size model? Right. To a degree, everybody has a level of privilege, right? Mm -hmm. But it, I think it's important because sometimes it gets lost is that race, you know, people like to say, oh, but have a class, you know? And Philip S.S. Howard actually talks about the fact that a quote unquote right, white trash person, right? And I use that because that is a common terminology to box certain people in, right? Mm -hmm. A white trash person, a, a poor white person, right? is more trusted than a upper class, quote unquote, black person. And he's done an extensive amount of research on that, right? So when people like to say, oh, but how about class? That but how about is actually silence. That is actually racism, right. right? And it's not about, you know, I'm more oppressed than you. It's not like my, uh, you know, George Day calls it, Professor George Day calls it oppression Olympics. It's not oppression Olympics. But it is important to sit with and think about how certain marginalizations really do sit in different planes respective to others, depending on how they're taken up and with respect to what, again, quote unquote, bodies or people. Mm -hmm. right. so, yeah. What is your hope in light of this current crazy climate? What would your hope be that our generation gets to this point? Right. As I mentioned, you know, I work with Black futures in mind, right? So I argue that we are good, that we have been good, that we are important, that we have things to say. And so that means this, this, and this, right? So my hope for our generation is to join me in that articulation, right? That Black people are good that black people have a history that doesn't just begin with slavery or colonialism, that black people have been doing things, that they have been good, right? And that is now our time 
to make sure we join racialized people in that moral goodness, right? So my hope is that people engage their moral center to understand the ways in which they have been immoral and the ways in which they can be better, right? You can be better, things can be good, but that it depends on you actually acting, not simply intend intending, but actually acting towards making that real. So my hope is that people take up that orientation. My hope is that people think about that. And I hope for a future that is just, where justice prevails for everybody. Awesome. So well said. Thank you. If people want to read some of the things that you've written, if they want to find your book, how can they go about doing those things? I mean, follow me on Instagram, y'all. <laughs> so, so my Instagram handle is at Echo Library, and I have my link tree in the bio, and they can check out my book and other work in there. Or you can just Google me, things come up. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much, Ezzy. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you for sharing your expertise, your thoughts, your emotions with us. It's been uh, really special. So I appreciate you very much. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast this week, guys. I hope that everybody enjoyed that episode. Remember, we release a new episode every Monday morning, so always be on the lookout for those. Make sure that you hit subscribe. I also really appreciate all the ratings and reviews. They really mean a lot to me. Even better, if you have someone in your life that you think would benefit from hearing the messages and the topics that we're discussing in this podcast, please share the show with them and help spread the word about how do you feel. If you want to follow along with me and my journey, you can follow me on Instagram at CaseyMZav. Or you can find the podcast website, HowDoYouFeelPodcast.com. That's all I have for you this week, guys. Make sure that you get out there and do something that makes you feel good today.